Would you please turn with me to your study outlines there in your program? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends in Kalispell, Montana at Purpose Church uh, Kalispell and also our wonderful friends in Arco, Idaho at the Baptist Community Church. Um, And we are so glad that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word as well. We're coming down the home stretch of our summer series, which is called The Journey. And it's based on the book of Deuteronomy. Now, next Sunday, we're going to finish up with a bang, okay? We're going to finish our summer series on Deuteronomy. Uh, We're going to finish it up with a bang. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on unity on the journey. And the title of the message is, How to Keep Our Church Unified Over the Next 14 Months or until November 3rd, 2020, which is Election Day. How to keep our church unified from now until Election Day. And so I figured we survived the talk on uh, immigration, the sermon on immigration a couple of weeks ago. So now I'm overconfident, all right? I, I got my confidence built on that. You guys were so kind. You were so gracious. So if we survived a, a sermon on immigration, we, we can handle this. If it doesn't go well, my farewell sermon will be two weeks from today. So next Sunday will be that one and then that the after. But we're going to finish up with how to keep our church unified over the next 14 months. Now as we look back over what we've done in Deuteronomy, uh, Pastor Eric and I were talking about this. I think he may have mentioned it just a couple weeks ago when he was uh, preaching. He and I have preached the entire, all the messages uh, from Deuteronomy. And the one regret we wish we had mentioned before that we got into this uh, series, but better late than never. This is just a lifelong habit that I think will be very, it'll be life-changing. I I really believe that. Is I would encourage you, if you don't own a study Bible, uh, to buy a study Bible. Now, by a study Bible, what I mean by that is a Bible that has um, all the Scripture here, and then on the bottom, it has notes explaining things on the different verses up above. And so my favorite one is what's called an NIV study Bible. That's what I've used for years. Uh, The NIV is the translation, the New International Version that we use here on Sunday morning. So I love that. But what I didn't realize, uh, and they grabbed me after the first service and told me this, is we have an NIV Life Application Study Bibles uh, when the Purpose Store opens up in two weeks. When that opens back up in the lobby with the Purpose Church swag and other things, it has these NIV Life Application Study Bibles. And I would urge you, if you don't have a study Bible, now there are dozens of different types of study Bibles. There's study Bibles for women. There's study Bibles for uh, Christian apologetics. There's study Bibles for everything. But if you don't have one, two weeks from today, they will be available at the Purpose Store. Um, And then also, they're going to be on display at the Community Terrace. So if you go out to the Community Terrace after the service, we're going to have some of these study Bibles on display there. And would really encourage you to do that. And and we Eric and I wish we had said this at the beginning of the Deuteronomy series because we were reading through Deuteronomy as a church. And how many, how many of you reading through the book of Deuteronomy ever came across something and said, that is some weird stuff going on? How many of you said that? All right, you go through there, it's like, what's going on here? Well, hopefully some of those things Pastor Eric and I covered in our sermons, but probably most of them we didn't. And that's the beauty of a study Bible is when you come across something you don't understand, 90% of the time, if you look down, say in verse three of chapter eight, you're like, what's going on there? You look down 90% of the time, there'll be something helpful. It may not answer all of your questions, but it'll get you going in the right direction. And so I would encourage you and 
maybe some of those, if you buy one, go back to Deuteronomy and some of those passages that were most difficult to understand. Uh, I just really love having a study Bible, and I hope to keep reminding you to have that discipline uh, as the years go by. Now, today we're going to talk about the relay on the journey, and it's based on Deuteronomy chapters 31 and 32. And as I've mentioned before, the book of Deuteronomy is a farewell sermon by Moses before he hands off the relay baton uh, to a new generation led by, the new generation is going to be led into the promised land by his younger assistant by the name of Joshua. And so Moses' challenge to our generation today would be to be as involved and invested as possible in mentoring the next generation. Uh, This is what has caused our church to thrive for almost 150 years. Next year will be our 150th birthday. And it is so rare, as I've said to you before, to be pumping like this after 150 years. Well, I think one of the reasons is, is because of this constant emphasis on mentoring the next generation. We've constantly been been invested in passing the baton to the next generation. Uh, Kathy Engelbert, who uh, just became the first commissioner of the WNBA, uh, she writes, seek out counsel and be a mentor to people because then they learn how to be mentors. You see, mentoring the next generation so that they, by your example, can be mentored but also learn how to mentor the next generation after them. And so this mentoring just keeps going on generation to generation. So that's what he would say to the older generation. And then Moses would say to the younger generation, he would say, seek out mentoring from the older generation. Seek out mentoring from the older generation. Lauren Bush writes, it's so important to seek out mentors and knowledge from those who have come before you. And I don't think I would be where I am today, both professionally and personally, without each and every mentor who helped me along the way. Denzel Washington wrote, show me a successful individual, and I'll show you someone who had real positive influences in his or her life. I don't care what you do for a living. If you do it well, I'm sure there was someone cheering you on or showing you the way there was a mentor. And so throughout this message, just to make it practical and concrete and real rather than theoretical, I want you to be thinking about uh, people that have mentored you in the past or that are mentoring you right now. And as you think of those people, just give thanks to God for those people and write down their name there in your study outline. Or if you want to keep it private, uh, jot down their initials. And then let the Holy Spirit speak to you as we go through um, God's Word and through these passages today. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about somebody that you can mentor. Now, you can mentor somebody older than you. You can mentor somebody the same age as you. But most of the time, you're going to mentor somebody younger than you. And so let the Holy Spirit just kind of speak to your heart. Who is someone younger than you of the, young, of the next generation that you need to be involved in mentoring? Uh, Dr. Warren Bennis is professor of management at the School of Business Administration at USC. And he did a four-year study of outstanding leaders. And he found five strengths that are common to all what he would call super leader. Five strengths that are common to all super leaders. Uh, The first one is vision. The capacity to create a compelling vision of a desired state of affair. That is, a leader is able to say, here's where we are. Here's a preferable future. Here's what a better future would look like in our business, in our organization, in our church. Here's here's what a better future would look like and to kind of paint a picture, a vision of that desired state of affairs. Then the second one is communication. 
The capacity to communicate that vision in such a way that it gains the support of other people in fulfilling that vision. And then number three is persistence. The capacity to maintain the organization's direction, uh, keep it going, especially when the going gets tough, especially when it's rough going, when you run into problems, when you run into challenges, uh, to be persistent in keeping the organization moving in the right direction. Then number four is organizational learning. The capacity to monitor an organization's performance, learn from our past actions, and use the resulting knowledge to forge a course for the future. And then number five, and this is what we're talking about today, is empowerment. The capacity to create a social structure that harnesses the energies and abilities of others to get the best result. And then to empower others to pass the baton to the next generation, and then to release them to do what God has called on them to do. Now, uh, I, I, we always joke here at Purpose Church about, Glenn always says such and such is my favorite video, my favorite video. This one that I'm going to show you now is truly my all-time favorite video. And, and the reason it is, the reason it's my favorite video is because the acting is just so amazing. I mean, it is Oscar-worthy. This is, this is just such, such talented acting in this. So let's watch this together. Since the dawn of church history, ministry leaders have been passing the baton to future generations. Some transitions are smooth, others are not. Today, we're gonna to be talking about five classic examples of how churches pass the baton. One common mistake the churches make is that they never raise up another generation to pass the baton to in the first place. When they get to the end of their lap, there is no one there to receive the baton. Sometimes churches do raise up a new generation, but they have trouble passing the baton. They drop the baton in the process. This is due to lack of foresight and preparation, and the transfer fails. Sometimes when passing the baton, it is simply a matter of timing. It is not uncommon for the next generation to become impatient. This baby boomer is taking way too long. I want the baton now. Sometimes, too close. The previous generation isn't willing to give the baton up. But every so often, once in a while, the rarest of events transpires. A church passes the baton to the next generation with perfect form. So remember, always be a church that passes the baton. Wow.
stunning, stunning acting. Okay, here's how Moses did this with Joshua. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, verse 1. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all of Israel. I'm 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. That, that, they've probably been thinking that for a while, all right? 120, but, but not everybody goes that long. My, our son, Andrew, is an air traffic controller, and uh, their mandatory retirement age is 56, which makes you happy that the people uh, that are keeping our planes from colliding with each other have all of their mental faculties at the sharpest uh, level. But you know what's interesting is not everybody went to 120 years, even though they lived a bit longer back then. Do you know that in Numbers chapter 8, and you can look this up, at the end of Numbers chapter 8, the mandatory retirement age for Levites was 50 years old. And this is fascinating. They couldn't serve until they were 25, and they had to retire at 50. So like right in their prime is when they were supposed to serve God. And the thing that I find interesting is then they had to retire at 50, but then the older ones didn't leave. They stuck around and helped. They were assistants to the younger ones that now took over the leadership. And so I find that so fascinating that they were in their prime, 25 to 50, they retired 50, but then they'd stay, and now it switches, and no longer are the younger ones serving them, but the older are serving the younger in order to help them fulfill the vision and the purpose that God has uh, given for them. So he says, I'm now 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. We'll see in a few minutes why that is. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua, okay, this is the young leader that he's passing the baton to, that he's mentored, also will cross over ahead of you as the Lord has said. After the Lord, and the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I've commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, we see the process of mentoring here in the relationship between Moses and Joshua. And, and I've been using material from John Maxwell. John Maxwell is uh, perhaps the top, he is the top leading expert of leadership in, in, the, in the world today. And uh, he was pastor of Skyline Wesleyan Church, which is kind of a sister church to our church. Had a similar size, had a similar growth pattern. And then he left that to become really the preeminent uh, expert on leadership in the world today. And you know what's so cool about John Maxwell is that his right-hand woman, okay, his, his right-hand person is goes to the 945 service here, Tracy Morrow. She hates me for this so much, but just, okay, she's the one going like this. Okay, raise your hand, Tracy. Right over there, oh, there it is, there it is. I see that hand, is there another? So anyway, uh, Tracy is like his, his right-hand person, and just God has used their leadership teaching. I mean, to, um, we're not talking just Christian organizations or churches. We're talking 
big time businesses, top Fortune 500 companies, and even nations. They even bring them in to give leadership to nations uh, around the world. It's just an incredible story. Well, I've been using his material uh, for the study for Deuteronomy. And he first of all talks about this process of mentoring, the, the encouragement of, of Joshua. You know, one of the biggest things about mentoring is just to encourage people. I find that so many times the younger generation, they just lack the encouragement. They, they doubt their abilities. And so much of what I do in mentoring is just like, no, 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 to be a cheerleader, to be an encourager. And do you see, do you see that back with, with Joshua and Moses? One of the main things Moses keeps saying is, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. You, you, you've got this. You can do this. And then the second one is the experience of Joshua. He had had all this experience, and it was over a 40-year time, and I'm not saying it's going to be that long for you, but over a period of time, he had gained experience while being mentored by Moses. The first time you see these two closely associated with each other is at Mount Sinai. So when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments and the law from Mount Sinai, Joshua was right there, and that's where they kind of begin this mentoring relationship. And so as a result of Joshua being there from the very beginning, he had an appreciation for God's power that they witnessed on Mount Sinai. He had appreciation and a reverence for God's holiness. He had a deep respect for God's law, for, for God's word. Uh, through the years, uh, Joshua had experience as a soldier. He had experience as a spy. He was one of the 12 spies that went into the promised land, the land of Canaan. So he knew the promised land that they, he was about to lead the people in to conquer. He, he had been there and, and experienced it himself, so now he could lead other people to go there as well. He, he had learned, most importantly, this is probably the most important one, is he had learned to obey God even when people ridiculed him for doing that. And even when he faced ridicule, he had learned to obey God. Now, let me say a word to the younger generation. I, I, I know it's so hard to be mentored by the older generation. You, you chafe underneath that. I get it. Believe it or not, I was young once. I know that's hard to comprehend, but I was young once. And, and I know, I'm just like, I was so chafing. I can do this. I, I can do this better than the person that's mentoring me or the person that's leading me. I, I can do this. But if, you, if you'll discipline yourself to humble yourself under that process, to gain experience, to watch another leader in action, oh, God is going to bless that so much uh, later in your life uh, when it does come time for you. And it's not going to be forever. We're going to talk about Joseph in a couple of minutes. And Joseph got his dream job. He got the baton handed to him when he was 30 years old. So it's not always older like it was for Joshua, who probably didn't get it, you know, for his 60s or, or maybe two-thirds of the way through his life or something like that. No. Um, sometimes, like with Joseph, you get it at the age of 30. You get it at a young age. But you got to have it be God's perfect timing, not our timing. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, In the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. He's going to give you the baton, but he's going to do it in, say that out loud with me, those two words, due time. Out loud, one more time together, due time. You, you, wait, you wait for his timing for that thing. And then the example of Joshua. Moses stands before the people of Israel, and he's just led them for 40 years. And he puts his hand on Joshua, on the hand on their next leader. 
And he says, you can trust him the way you trusted me. You've learned to trust me over the last 40 years. Now I'm telling you, this guy has been with me in the thick, in the thin. He's experienced it. He's gone through this with me. And you can trust him the way that you trusted me. And then the empowerment of, of Joshua. Back to Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. He empowers him, and, and then he gives him the relay baton and releases him. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. He empowers Joshua, and then he releases Joshua. Now, the second part of this is teaching the next generation. Let's continue later in chapter 31, verse 9. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. Uh, then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years in the year for canceling debts during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people. And now we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how men being in that assembly makes perfect sense in 1400 BC. That's what you would find in every other culture 3,400 years ago. But here's what's countercultural in, in Deuteronomy. Men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns. So they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children, who do not know this law, must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're crossing the Jordan uh, to possess. And then skipping to the next chapter, chapter 32, verse 45, when Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, uh, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Anybody want to say amen to that? Let's repeat just that that's in the yellow there. Out loud together. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. And then later on, God said all this to Moses, but now he speaks. The baton has been passed off to Joshua, and now God appears to Joshua. Joshua 1, verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Would everybody turn with me in their programs? Asking everybody to do this. Turn with me in your programs there uh, to the first page. And this program today just is filled with opportunities to put the verses we've just read into action in your life. And we want to make these things live. There's an action step. Every time that I preach, I, I want to have some kind of, this is what we do as a result of what the Bible uh, says we should do. So let me give you some examples as to how we can put this into action. Awana volunteers. I can't think of a better way to put this into application, into action in your life than if you have children or grandchildren or you have children in your neighborhood 
bring them to Awana. You know that we're one of the few churches in the nation, we've actually been recognized for this, that has two different times for Awana. We have, we have two options. So if it works better in your schedule afternoon or if it works better in the evening, we've got two options. One is 3.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon. One is 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening. And then to volunteer, to serve in Awana, I can't think of a better way than to put God's word into action that we've just been reading than to be involved in Awana uh, this year. You know, just a little side story. Laura Coronado, who is the head of our Awana program, I, I can just see how God raised her up and protected her life for such a time as this. Laura was a very accomplished businesswoman, tops in, tops in her field. And she was supposed to be in one of the Twin Towers on the day of 9-11. She actually was supposed to be there, but because the project she and her team had been working on here in Los Angeles was ahead of schedule, she sent some of her other team there instead of herself because they could just kind of wrap up what needed to be done. And they were killed in those buildings on 9-11. And so Laura, who's not yet a follower of Christ at this point, she begins to say, God, what did you spare me for? Why was my life spared? She comes to a funeral service here at Purpose Church. She eventually commits her life to Christ. And the thing that God laid on her heart was, you're supposed to lead our Awana ministry. You're supposed to take your top business giftedness and apply it to our Awana program. And oh, how it has thrived under her leadership. She, she, this is what God spared her life for. This is what he was calling her to. Uh, Pomona Youth Club that you saw in the video announcements earlier uh, that Courtney was uh, talking about earlier. You can see this is a great ministry for high school students, for college students, uh, uh, for grandparents. What a great ministry that is. Turn to the back of your program. If you turn to the back of your program, you'll see that uh, our chosen, Pastor Tomiko, who's our Justice Ministries pastor, is starting this new ministry, Chosen, for foster care and adoption ministry. And uh, my, my wife, Kimberly, she runs the New Community Academy here on our campus. They have need for a young man. Uh, for If anybody could just open up their home to this young man, it would get him out of a tough situation so he could stay in that school, which has completely changed his life. Uh, the Dress a Girl Around the World. What a great ministry. Talk about having a talent that you think, how can God use that? I was talking to a lady after the first service. She says, I just love to sew. I just love to, so how's God going to use that? Well, this group of, of people have gotten together. Uh, I'm, uh, I don't want to be sexist. I assume it's all women, but it may not be, and it's cool. Okay, okay, all good. The bunch of women of a church got together, and they've been sewing dresses for girls around the world. Guess how many they've done so far? 2,700. 2,700 dresses they've done. And, and so these, these are all ways that you can reach out uh, to the next generation. Mentoring and teaching the next generation certainly involves uh, parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts. September 8th is Grandparent Day. And so Pastor Randy, uh, he's going to be holding pr prayer meetings for grandparents to pray for their grandchildren. He's going to hold a, a five-week classes uh, in September. He's going to have five weeks. As a matter of fact, right after the 945 service, I think it's at 1111, you could leave the 945 service, go right to a grandparenting class that will help equip you as to how you can invest spiritually in the next generation within your family, within your grandchildren. A spiritual grandparenting that Pastor Eric um, uh, and, and Pastor Randy started together where uh, Pastor Randy recruits those from the older generation 
And then Pastor Eric, that they, they put one with each high school student and each junior high student within our ministry under Pastor JT and Pastor Eric. Every one of our students has a spiritual grandparent from the older generation that mentors them during the year. And that program uh, starts next month uh, in, in September. And then something I heard at staff on Tuesday that just blew me away. Pastor Lisa Patterson, our children's pastor. Uh, what they're doing now in children's ministry, as you know, our vision statement is everyone everywhere following Jesus. But then our mission statement is connect with God, connect with others, connect others with God. And our children's ministry now has three different programs. Almost every other church I know, they have one that just repeats itself through the morning. Two, three unique programs. 1111 is uh, helping our children to connect with God. 945 to helping them connect with others. 830, connect others with God. Uh, three distinct programs, which is by far, that's three times as much work as it is to just do one program over and over again. And Pastor Lisa Patterson said, our children's pastor said something I'd never heard a children's pastor ever say in all my life. She says, I wish our kids could attend all three hours on Sunday morning, or at least two. And when I heard that, I got a white robe on. I went to the top of Mount Baldy because I thought, Jesus is coming back tonight. I had never, never heard that before. Now, now, this doesn't mean that you can drop off your kids and go to brunch on Sunday morning. That, that is not uh, the meaning of that. Uh, it gives you a chance to worship at one service and then serve in children's ministry the other service, that's the, that's the opportunity it gives you to, to have your kids be invested in multiple times. Think how many hours they have other cultural influences on them and the minuscule hours that they're trained in, in, in church, you know, to multiply those hours and for yourself to serve in children's ministry. And then releasing the next generation. Uh, first of all, not doing it poorly. An example I've used before uh, with uh, Saul and his relationship with David, um, I just find this passage one of the most helpful leadership passages on how not to do leadership that I've ever seen. First uh, Samuel 18, verse 5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. Good. So far, so good. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Okay, good, good, good. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now let's just freeze it there for just a moment. Now some Bible scholars believe there was no reason for Saul to take offense. This is just Hebrew poetry. And the way they would do Hebrew poetry, it just basically means Saul and David have, have killed thousands and thousands. But even if it did mean David his tens of thousands, and that's the way Saul took it. So that, that's the way we'll, we'll take it here. Even if it did mean that, Saul his thousands, days of ten, his tens of thousands, Saul's reaction should have been, hallelujah. That's exactly what we want. I mean, don't you want, you parents, want your children to exceed you in their accomplishments? The greatest joy in Kimberly in my life has been to see our kids exceed us in our accomplishments in life. Uh, my, our, my greatest joy would be if the next generation uh, the next uh, pastor that leads after me, the next that leads the next generation of people of Purpose Church, that that if our generation has reached thousands, 
let's pray to God that the next generation reaches tens of thousands. Anybody want to say amen to that? That's what we want. We want to reach thousands, and then we want to equip and empower the next generation to reach tens of thousands. Uh, but this did not go over well uh, with, with Saul. Verse 8. He says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Who, who cares, by the way? Let's go back to that verse. Who cares if he gets the kingdom? That is the whole point. It's not your kingdom, Saul. It's God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. You, you hand off that baton because it's not your kingdom. It's not your baton. You hand it off to the next generation. Uh, verse 9. Now we can go to verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. In some paraphrases, it says he kept a jealous eye on him. So it's ironic that the king of Israel, supposedly a godly king, does it poorly, but a pagan leader, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, does it well. Genesis 41, verse 38. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? Joseph has just interpreted his dreams. One in whom is the Spirit of God. So as a member of the older generation, he sees somebody from the younger generation that has, that has giftedness, that has the Spirit of God working in them. Look what his response is. So different than Saul's. Verse 41. He said, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. And so he'd hear from his palace, make way. Later on, when Joseph was used to save them from starvation, Joseph has saved us. Joseph has saved us. And his response was the opposite of, of Saul's. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. It only made him look good to empower this younger leader. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Now this is why he was able to do this. He was secure in his own position. I'm Pharaoh. I'm secure but with, so I can release you. I can empower other people because I myself am secure in, in God's purpose in my particular life. But without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaneth Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old. Do you see that, young adults? You may not have to wait until later in life like Joshua. He gets his dream job when he's 30 years old, when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled uh, throughout Egypt. Um, um, that's the last verse. Okay. <laughs> Final point. Uh, setting an example for the next generation. Okay. Now this one, I want to say a word. Well, really it applies to all generations, but it particularly applies uh, to the older generation. Setting an example for the next generation right through the finish line. Because I've seen so many of my generation, I'm thinking particularly of pastors because that's the realm I, I work in, and oh, so many have failed on the home stretch. So many have stumbled on the home stretch. I, I wrote a book about this. When I turned 50, it was basically a, a, an exercise for myself called Fourth Quarter Fumbles. 
about all the kings in Israel who started well but did not finish well. And it basically was just a way to keep me on, on the straight and narrow and to, and to finish well and not stumble at the finish line. But even Moses, as great as he was, he messed up on the home stretch. Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up into Abiram range to Mount Nebo and Moab across from Jericho and view Canaan, the land I'm giving the Israelites, as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites. And you can read the story in Numbers 20. You can read that on your own. But basically what happened was uh, Moses had heard criticism from the people of Israel for 40 years. And finally, he thought to himself, I have just had it. I'm going to blow up and tell them exactly what I think about them. I mean, I've swallowed it for 40 years. Now it's my time. This is going to feel so good. And in the process, he disobeyed God. In the process, he stole some of the glory from God and shared it with himself. And God was not pleased with that. And so he gets to see the promised land. He doesn't get to go there. At the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. And because you did not uphold my holiness and the Israelites. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. Now, as the praise team comes up for some closing worship, I just want to give you kind of a weird illustration. And it works in my brain. I hope it's transferable to yours. But Kimberly and I, we were um, watching a British murder mystery the other day. Um, we love anything British. If somebody has a British accent, we're watching it, all right? And so, watching a British murder mystery. And finally, at the end of the series, you find out who did the murder. And he confessed it completely, said, I did it, 100%, it's him. But when he gets up in court, instead of pleading guilty, he pleads not guilty because he thinks he can get off on a technicality. And so the pastor goes to visit him in prison and said, hey, I thought you were going to plead guilty and come clean before God and come clean before the people of this community. You're going to cause so much woundedness to go through a trial. And like, why in the world did you, you plead not guilty? And he, he, he said, don't, don't, aren't you going to feel guilty if you get off on a technicality? He says, and he said, no. He said, here's the way I figure it. During his career, he was a paramedic. And he said, during my career as a paramedic, I have saved about 50 lives. And so I murdered one. I'm still 49 to the good. <laughs> now, all you paramedics and police officers and, and, and paramedics, you're, you're, all, you're all saying, does it work that way? Oh, this is great. As long as I murder one less than I save, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. All right. and, and the pastor just looks at him and he says, I don't think it works that way. I don't think it works that way. And, and you, know what the, you know what? Satan is so deceptive. And this just isn't for older. This is for all generations. He, he tricks us in this way. You know what? I've been sacrificing my whole life. And I've been a good person. I've sacrificed so much for my kids and my grandsons. And you get to the end of life, you say, you know what? It's my turn now. This is me time. And people that have had their values completely straight through their life, they get to the end of the life and they begin to live a selfish life right before they go to heaven. And they set this bad example to the next generation. Or this can happen in any generation. You can say, you know what? 
I've done so much good. I do so many good things. I can allow myself this one pet sin. This is kind of the one I'm going to enjoy because I do so much good over there. And God says, it doesn't work that way. Let's run through the finish line and provide a great example for the next generation. Let's run hard right through our leg of the relay. Let's place the baton firmly in the hand of the next generation. Let's then take our place in the grandstands and cheer on the next generation. And then generation to generation, let's celebrate together for eternity. And all God's family said,